want to talk for a minute about uh, voices, when a voice has authority or not. Um, I'll give you an example, um, and then actually two examples, and then I'd love for your help with that. So sometimes there's a voice of authority that doesn't have much authority. And I'm thinking pets. <laughs> We'd like to think that we have a voice of authority. And somebody finally told me, here's how you can get your dog to always obey. When the dog runs out the door and is running away, you just say, well, are you coming or aren't you? And they can't disobey your words, right? Because the authority is, I can't stop them once something is in their mind, right? They're going to go, right? I should have a voice of authority, but sometimes not so much. But sometimes the voice of authority actually has authority. And one place I think of this is a good coach with good players, right? And, and obviously what I mean is not good players in terms of skillful players, in terms of good players who say, well, when the coach says, don't shoot now, they don't shoot now, right? What the coach says, they do. So sometimes there are places where there's a voice of authority that actually has authority. So I'd love your help, whether... Uh, online if you want to unmute or chat but in the room to shout out when does the voice of authority not really have as much authority as we would like any examples of that everybody has complete oh yeah okay. when you're trying to organize Organizing unbelievers, organizing anyone for a Bible study, right? Let's let's coordinate schedules. Let's get people together. Yeah, it can be challenging. Yes. Ah, uh, yes, excellent. When you are young and you say, "I'm going to stay up later tonight," and it turns out you don't have quite as much authority to declare that as you thought. Yeah. Teachers at the end of the semester. Teachers, yes, yeah. If you have felt that recently, teachers at the end of the semester. Saying, let's pay attention. Yeah. What was that? Weather alerts. Weather alerts. Yeah, yeah, I hate to say it. Years ago, a tornado touched down in Williamston. We had people at our house, and the siren went off. And I said, let's go outside and see what it is. <laughs> Bad idea. Don't follow your pastor in that one. Um, yeah, so sometimes there's a weather alert that says, you better change your behavior. And we say, oh, I don't know. I don't see anything. Yeah. Any other time? No, those are those are good. So uh, this might be more challenging. So when is it that a voice of authority actually has authority? When the authority says, "Here's what has to happen." Yeah. There were eight kids in my family, and my mother would sometimes talk and yell, and we wouldn't hear her. We loved her very much. But when my father got home, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You wanted to live through it. So yeah. Sometimes a parent, or a particular tone of voice of a parent. Maybe kids know that. Sometimes mom says do this, and you know that well we can get away with it. And sometimes it's pretty clear we cross the line. It's time. Yeah. Any other time that that the voice of authority actually has authority. Airport security. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, we realize this is not a time to uh, make jokes about the thing that's in our bag or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to think a bit today about what the voice of God is like in our lives. And 
trying to make sense of the, the, the power that his words have, his voice has for us. Uh, let's pray and ask him to speak. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can hear your voice. We are so thankful that your words uh, were written down for us, um, that you communicated, sometimes audibly, sometimes uh, in a mysterious way by your spirit, uh, and yet we have record of your words. And Jesus, we thank you for uh, your teaching, for your interactions with people, and, and you spoke. We ask that your words would demonstrate your authority today. That when you speak, what you say would be true in us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts. That you would bring about the good that Jesus intends with his word. His words that he spoke so long ago, and yet they are his words still today. And so we ask that they would be with power. That you would do your work in us that we would walk in the ways of our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Title today is Authority. We're in Luke 19. We'll talk more about this drawing in a few minutes. Um, I just want to say a quick word. It's a little bit clumsy, the verses that I've picked. It's the end of Luke 19 and, and then goes on into 20. And it's just the reminder that the verse and chapter numbers were all put in long after the, the text was written. And so we want to be cautious about thinking, well, the beginning of the chapter is where I should start reading. Because sometimes it's very clear that the author's intentions were broader than that. Um, so we're going to actually do a couple verses we did a few weeks ago and then lead into chapter 20. Uh, I invite you to have the text open in front of you, the links uh, as well, um, and, and the handout uh, if you choose for that. Um, let me just say a word about what comes even earlier in this passage. So we've looked in recent weeks at uh, Jesus powerfully entering Jerusalem. He came to Jerusalem, the center of authority of a power uh, in, in Israel. And as he came, the crowd so dramatically were shouting out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, this was not subtle. It was not hidden. And Jesus clearly intended it to be very dramatic in the way he entered. And then once Jesus entered, he declared judgment on Jerusalem. <laughs> he said, this place is going to get destroyed. He came very powerfully and dramatically, and, and he did it with so much compassion as he was weeping. But his weeping was, as a prophet, saying, this place is in trouble. Then he went to the temple and he cleared out the temple courts throwing out the sellers there, and it seems that these were authorized sellers. The, the, the leaders of the temple said, you have approval to be selling animals in the temple. And Jesus kicked them all out. And having kicked them all out, we're told that every day he taught in the temple. So Jesus came very dramatically to this most powerful place in Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And then in this passage today, we read, starting Luke 19, verse 47. Every day, Jesus was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Just a few words here, a uh, few reflections. One is this group, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people, 
Uh, it seems that this is the, the Sanhedrin. It's expressed a little bit differently here than usually about the leaders among the people. Uh, yet this was, these are the most powerful men in Israel, the most powerful people. Uh, they were like the high, the Supreme Court, it was the highest authority. And they were joined together trying to kill Jesus. Here's our purpose. We want to destroy him. When there was eventually a trial, the outcome was already determined. They just needed to figure out what's a way that we could justify killing him. Yet, we're told they couldn't do it because all the people were very different from the leaders. The leaders said, let's kill Jesus. But we're told all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. They, they were paying attention to everything. Whenever he taught, when he was there, they were listening. And they didn't miss anything. And so these religious leaders couldn't do anything about it. And so one of the fascinating things is to look ahead to the end of the passage we're going to look at today, chapter 20, verse 19, and it says almost exactly the same thing. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, but they were afraid of the people. The leaders of the people actually weren't very much like leaders. They were controlled by the people they were to lead. And yet they had an agenda, and they were going to find a way to get it done. So as they were looking for a way to kill Jesus, all the people are listening to Jesus. Jesus taught. And so now chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, ah, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where, he's, uh, where it is from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority in doing these things. Sounds like a chess match, right? If I move this piece here, then they're going to move this piece, and then we'll have to move this piece. And then they say, there are no good options. We don't know. Ignorance is the best option that we can find. So let's just look at a few things that stand out. Again, we have these people gathering, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders. And they say, how can we trap Jesus? So here's how we'll do it. We're going to go after authority. And to say, where does your authority come from to do these things? These things is plural. It's probably this bold entry into, into Jerusalem. It's declaring judgment on the temple in Jerusalem. It's clearing out the, the temple. It's teaching every day. They say, where does your authority come to do all these bold, dramatic things? And it's important to see that, that these chief priests, they're the ones that controlled what happened in the temple. This is their place of authority. They had the say about this. Where did their authority come from? Well, it seems that it largely came through birth. They were born into a high priestly family. They were wealthy. They were good at collaborating with other powers. And this is the way that they established and had the authority that they had in the temple. And Jesus didn't have any of those. Right? He, he, he didn't have birth into a priestly family or an important family. He didn't have money. He was not known for collaborating with the authorities. 
right? He would speak to the to the powers, but he didn't try to get power from them. Jesus didn't have any of these. And so they challenged Jesus, basically saying, you have no right to do what you've been doing. We have the right to say if you can do it, and we didn't give you permission. They knew that if Jesus claimed divine authority, they would probably be able to find a way to accuse him of blasphemy. If she says, well, God told me to do this, it's, they would, would challenge that and say, how, how can you come to the point that you believe that, that, that you would make that claim? And are you claiming to be a prophet? And they would think that they could trap him. One last thing to say about this is that having a debate in the temple was the highest stakes environment that you could be in for public honor and shame. If you could win a debate in the temple, everybody would know. And if you lose a debate in the temple, everybody would know. So this is it. This is the showdown between these religious leaders and Jesus. And they took their first step and say, tell us your authority. Where does it come from to do these bold things that override us? And so then Jesus replied. But he replied with this question. He says, okay. And this was a normal thing to do in his day in a debate. You could challenge the questioner and say, well, you answer my question and I will answer you. And so he asks the same question. Tell me about John the Baptist. Was his authority from heaven or from people? And it's important to know that John the Baptist, he was from a priestly family. right? He, he was born into a family of priests. And yet he didn't really collaborate with power very well. John lived out in the desert. He proclaimed a way of forgiveness that was separate from the temple. He said there's a a baptism of repentance through the washing of water and this one who will come separate from the sacrifices of the temple. And so these priests certainly were not impressed with John the Baptist. And yet the people were. Right? So so both options for the priests would get them in big trouble if they say, oh yeah, John the Baptist, he's from God. Well, they couldn't say that because they rejected him. They wouldn't be baptized by him. They wouldn't obey him. They wouldn't do what he said. And yet the people were so convinced that John was a a great prophet of God. And so they had nothing to say. Ignorance was the best they could do. And it is valuable to see, I think, that these leaders had formal authority. They were completely dependent upon public opinion. If, If they said, they were afraid, if they said what the people didn't like, the people would stone them that they were very much afraid of what the people would say and what the people would do. And so their answer is, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I won't tell you either. (laughs) Right? Jesus interprets their answer. You know, you just don't want to say. And if you don't want to say, I won't say. But the reality is that their non-answer revealed their real fear. Right? They feared people rather than God. That was their real fear. That's why they wouldn't say anything. Jesus elsewhere had taught, don't cast your pearls before swine. Right? Don't take something that's of, of great value for, for you, but the pigs won't understand at all. And they'll just make it dirty and destroy it. And so Jesus had taught, don't give what's valuable to animals that will just destroy it. They don't value it. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. They were trying to trap Jesus rather than trying to learn. They wanted to get him to say something, to get him in trouble. They didn't want an answer to the question. They didn't care. They just wanted to be able to trap Jesus. 
And so Jesus said, there's no value in my answering your question directly. However, he did choose to answer their question, just in a way that was really hard for them to trap him in it. And so here's, I think, really Jesus' answer to their question of what is your authority for doing these things. So Luke 20, starting at verse 9, he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Let me just say two things. One is, this is very clearly a parable that's in judgment of the leaders. And yet, he told the parable to the people. And I think he's warning the people about their leaders and about how they treat their leaders and how they react to their leaders. So he's telling the people this parable, and it's a parable about a man who planted a vineyard. Now, before I read it, in order to hear it the way they did, I want to read a few verses from Isaiah 5, which would have been well known to them. This is a song about a vineyard. Isaiah 5 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. And, and the, the song goes on about how uh, the, the owner of the vineyard withdrew his protection, withdrew his blessing, and it fell apart. They would have known this song about a vineyard that represents Israel. This would have been very, uh, the first thing they would think of when somebody says, let me tell you a story about a vineyard. But there's a really, really big difference between Isaiah's description, as God gave it, and what Jesus said. See, in Isaiah, the vineyard produced bad grapes. It would only produce bad fruit. For Jesus, he says the problem's not the fruit. The problem is the tenants. The problem is the farmers, the vine dressers, the people taking care of this vineyard. So, with that as a backdrop, let's read what Jesus said. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Ah, I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and said, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. 
Let's just walk through that parable a bit to see a few things. So it says this man planted this vineyard. He rented it out and then he went away for a long time. There was a period of time and these people were free to do what they chose to do with the vineyard. And then at harvest, at the right time, the owner sent servants. Sent the first servant. Said, it's time for you to pay what you owe for uh, having use of this vineyard. But they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. And this one was worse. They beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third servant, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then, as I've said, I think it's a powerful strategy in, in biblical narrative or in a parable is when there is dialogue, you're meant to slow down and really pay attention. And here we get the inner words, the inner thinking of the owner. And here's one thing, it's hard to see in English. In Greek, that word owner is exactly the same word as Lord. So it's so clear in this parable that the owner is God, right? The, the, the vineyard is God's people, and the tenants are the leaders over God's people. The owner, the Lord of the vineyard, said, what will I do? And he says, I'll send my son. My beloved son, which, which could mean my only son. Anybody shocked by how this owner of the vineyard behaves? Is he crazy? Right? This is astonishing patience. Even on the level of being naive or foolish. These people have had three times already. They are rejecting him. They're beating his servants. And he thinks that now I'll send my son and somehow it'll be better? It's astonishing that he would be so patient and so hopeful for a different response. When in reality, it's no different from before. In fact, this is just evil, right? To say, here it is. If we kill him, we get the vineyard. And yet, this is exactly what's going on in the leader's response to Jesus. It's exactly what they're doing. If we could kill Jesus, we would have control of Judaism again. We would have control of the temple. We'd have control over the people. We could just get rid of him. And in the story, the owner does exactly what the owner would do. You treat people justly. An eye for an eye. He's been incredibly patient, but now that time is done and he's going to treat these tenants the way the tenants have treated his son. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Now, I I confess to being uh, a little bit set back by the New International Version's translation to say, God forbid, um, because it's not what it says in the Greek. (laughs) Greek just says, may it never be. Don't let that happen. Anything but that. And so this is a, you know, a casual expression in English of God forbid to say that, but it seems really casual in how it uses the name of God. Nevertheless, the people react with shock, with horror, saying, what a terrible story, Jesus. Where, why, why are you saying this? This sounds terrible. What are they reacting to? I think, I think perhaps they're reacting to the whole story. To a story that's just, this is not a good bedtime story, right? Of this rebellion and attack and, and then the response of judgment. I think they were troubled by the whole thing. By the rebellion, by God's people against God. 
and the fact that this leads to real judgment. And I think the whole story bothered them. This is not good. Why this story, Jesus? And so that's where I think Jesus looked directly at them. And I love it says this, right? He says, this, bothers, this story bothers you, doesn't it? And he says, well, you should be bothered. This is really problematic, what these people are doing, what humanity is doing. And so then he said, this is what prophecy has said. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that, that this rejected stone rose to supremacy. Rejecting the stone does not work. In fact, the rejection of this cornerstone costs them everything. And this is why the religious leaders were so upset. Said, they're the problem in the story. They're the ones who have rejected the stone, yet this stone will be the cornerstone. This stone is the one that will then crush them. And, and, and sometimes I, I know there's, there's uh, a way of looking at these two lines that the, everyone uh, who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone to, on whom it falls will be crushed. Sometimes people look at that and say the first one's not as bad as the second. Uh, maybe. Neither one's good. <laughs> right? It's being broken to pieces. It's being crushed. You go against the stone, you're going to pay a high price. And the teachers of the law and the chief priests knew that he'd spoken this parable against them. And yet the people loved it. What a story. What an answer to their question. Where do you get this authority you claim to have, Jesus? I, I think the big idea here, first of all, is that God is astonishingly patient. It's just overwhelming at how patient and kind the, the man in the story is, his willingness to put up with attacks and, and suffering and even the death of his son. And despite resistance and opposition, one day Jesus Christ will judge all who do not submit to him as king. Right? He's astonishingly patient. And yet he says, this stone will become the cornerstone and those who trip over it will be destroyed. Those who trip over it will pay the highest price. God is astonishingly patient. And even though people try to resist and talk against him, one day Jesus Christ will judge who all, all who did not submit to him as king. Way back at the beginning of, of Luke, uh, Simeon blessed Jesus in the temple. And he said, this child, Jesus, is destined to call the fault cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And I confess, I would love to drop out that first part and just say, this child is destined to cause the rising of many in Israel. And yet, Simeon said, people's reaction to this child will determine judgment and life. He will be the judge who will be the means of them being crushed. Those who stand against him. So we look at this uh, look at this picture. I don't know if you can see some of the activities that are that are happening in this picture. Anybody see some? What are people doing in this in this picture? Yeah. Noisy things. Yes, definitely noisy things. Yeah. Yep, watching TV. Yep, great. What else are people doing? Looking 
their iPhones. iPhones, yeah. Excellent. All these activities going on, some really noisy, some talking and working, and yet the person who shouts out, stop, please, right? Words from authorities have little impact, I think especially from today, right? We question a lot of words of authorities because we question authority, and so the, the authority says, stop, and you can kind of hardly tell that anything has been said. And it is the question in this world, who has ears to hear the words of Jesus. And so now, the person who was saying stop does something different. Now through the power switch. <laughs> right? And all of a sudden it's dark, the devices go off. The reality is that few things have the power to stop us in our tracks. I thought COVID did. And it did stop us in a lot of ways. But in reality, what I think is it made deeper the ways that we were following already, right? It didn't change us. It just intensified us. Few things have the power to stop us in our tracks and to say, wait a minute, what am I doing? And the reality is that one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. One day he will, he will come and he will pull the power switch and everything will stop. And all that will be heard is his word. And the invitation is, that those who listen to his voice before then will be saved. Those who hear his voice and submit to him will be saved. And those who, who postpone, who put it off, who reject it, will be judged. What Jesus clearly taught. In fact, uh, this is a summary from the apostles in Acts. The apostles said, here's our message. We are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. It says this Jesus we proclaim this Jesus who was killed and then rose again to life. He is God's appointed judge. And when he speaks, his word will be. It'll be final. And it'll be based on how we have responded to him. And Jesus was amazingly patient. Even in the story today, he, he is being opposed by these people who are trying to kill him. And he says, yet again, I will explain. Yet again, I will allow you to oppose me. And you will be the ones who accomplish my death. Right? The, the idea of God is astonishingly patient. And yet, despite resistance or opposition, one day, Jesus Christ will judge all who did not submit to him as king. So, humbly, I'll offer to you what I think is the most important question in life. Uh, the most important question in life is not... Are you good enough? Right? The most important question isn't, have you done more good than bad? It's not, did you have the right beliefs? It's not, have you lived up to your potential? Have you tried your best? Did you have good intentions? Are you at peace with your life? Are you at peace with your death? Those aren't the most important questions. Rather, the most important question is this. What are you doing about Jesus? 
not how good we are, it's not what we intend, it's not how things have gone. The question is, what do you do about Jesus? The religious leaders chose to reject him. They said, no, we want to fight against him. We're going to try to get rid of him. We're going to try to silence him. And he says, they're going to be crushed. I think more often what people do is they choose to walk away. Like the rich young ruler, when Jesus said, you need to get rid of your money to follow me. And he said, I think I'll just not deal with it. Right? The, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son where the, the older brother decides, no, I don't want to enter into your celebrations, Jesus. I'm just going to stay out here. And not a direct rebellion is just walking away. And certainly what we are called to do in our response, what we are doing about Jesus, is to worship him as God and king with every part of our lives. He's incredibly patient. And yet he will reign. And Jesus looked directly at them and said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And missing him is the most costly thing you could ever do. So the application is to prepare for the coming judgment when Jesus returns. He's been so clear about this in his teaching. And the invitation is to find salvation in Jesus. And the key question in that is, is your name written in the book of life? Right? This, this offer that is given, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the invitation. It says, here's what you're to do about Jesus, to call on him and say, I need your mercy. Will you rescue me because of what you have done? Your goodness, your sacrifice, will you rescue me? The, the apostles went on to teach salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The only question that matters is what are we doing about Jesus? And calling out to him, to call out in his name is the means of salvation. And this is the most important issue in life by far. And this is what we had to deal with while we were living. And this will be the most important issue when we die or when Jesus returns. It's a warning. It says, here's a, a great invitation. God's incredibly patient. Will you cry out to him? And to prepare for the coming judgment when Jesus returns, then is to submit to Jesus in all areas of life. Uh, a statement that, that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. He says, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. He says, will we submit to Jesus as king? Will we recognize that he is the cornerstone and tripping on him is costly? We should, as he goes on to say, learn to fear God, to say his opinion is what matters most and I need his mercy, so I cry out for it. Clearly in this section we see the call to fear God and not people. People are so powerful. We see it, this is so much of politics, is based on what is the opinion of a whole bunch of people. Not integrity, not what's right, it's what the people think. How can we get votes, how can we get support? Because the will of the people is what drives us, rather than the commitment to what is true and what is right. One way to think about what we fear is this. What has the power to ruin your day? Is it a, a grade you get? 
Is it somebody's comment to you online or in person? Is it an apparent failure of your own? What is it that has the power to ruin your day or to make your day? It's a good chance this is what we really fear. And we're invited to fear God alone. To say what God thinks of me matters more than anything else. And in this I need his mercy. And so I cry out for it. It's so important. Don't confuse his astonishing patience for approval or acceptance. It's going fine so far. God isn't isn't, uh, judging me and so this seems like it's okay. It seems good to me. But it really is the question for us to ask. Does Jesus have true authority in all parts of our lives? Um, I was talking to Marco about marching band. Made me think about uh, marching band. He's done having to march in the band, by the way. Yay! <laughs> when I was in high school, I was in marching band. And uh, I probably wasn't the greatest uh, participant in marching band. But one of the things I learned is that when you're marching, if you do the wrong marching steps, it becomes pretty clear right away. Right? I was playing the, uh, the, the mellophone normally paid French horn, the mellophone, this big bell in front of you, seems appropriate. And you turn the wrong way, and you're banging people, right? You've got your instrument, it hits people, and it really hurts your teeth when you turn the wrong way, right? So there's a great commitment not to make the wrong steps. But if you don't happen to blow much wind through your instrument, but you have your mouth up to the mouthpiece, if you're playing the wrong note, nobody knows, because you're not playing anything, right? And so you can hide. Well, turns out our band director knew this. So I still remember the day. We're in the afternoon out in the field in Okemos. And he said, okay, right now, no marching. Just stand where you are. Music away. You can't have any music. Start playing. And I'm going to walk around and listen to you and to see individually how you were doing. And so the calculation's going through my mind. Where is he? Where is he? Is this the part I don't know? Oh, sure enough, he got to the spot that I didn't know. Well, maybe there were a couple of spots that I didn't know. But he heard that I didn't know. But I realized I spend an awful lot of my time in life thinking that I can blend into the crowd and not be worried about what God thinks. As long as I blend in with what other people are doing and, and what I'm doing, I don't think anybody can really tell. And my attitude, no, I can hide that pretty well. I think I can blend into the crowd. And I think I'm fine. And the reality is, there's no blending in to the crowd with Jesus. Does Jesus have true authority in my life? Does he have true authority in your life where it's not just blending in the crowd, this is how other people are doing it? Or is it saying, he knows my heart. He knows everything I'm doing. And I try to pretend that I didn't mean that comment to be mean. (laughs) I try to pretend I'm not worried about what people think more than what God thinks. I try to pretend God is not fooled. Don't confuse his astonishing patience with his approval or his acceptance of these things. Don't confuse the ability to hide with my hope that I can escape. We need to submit to Jesus in all parts of our lives. We will appear before him to answer for what we've done. And so here's the second application, which is so helpful right now. And that is to rejoice in God's superbounding patience. Right? In this story, the owner is just, he's foolishly patient. It's astonishing how much he would sacrifice 
in the hopes that these people would respond. But this is a wonderful picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Right, so I, I just love the words from the hymn that because of my Savior, my chains fell off. Right, they're my chains. I deserve them. This is where I deserve to be, but my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee entirely because of the superbounding grace of God. I say, God, I need that. We rejoice in the superbounding patience and the superbounding grace of God. No one else would try as many times or would wait as long with as much self-sacrifice, hoping that we will turn to him. Right, and this, this, this parable certainly is presented as putting a heavy emphasis on our decisions and on what we can do. And God in his sovereign work also describes it this way, where the owner of the vineyard says, I hope, I hope they'll respond this time. No one else would have that kind of patience. I would never have that kind of patience with others. I would say, how foolish are you? And yet, this is how Jesus describes the will of the Father with his superbounding grace. And yet, this patience has a limit. Jesus taught this so clearly. This doesn't go on forever. And so the statement that we read in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but turn to him and be saved. Don't harden your hearts. Don't wait. Don't say I can hide in the crowds. It's to cry out to him, who is the judge who has offered his life to give forgiveness, to give his love. God is astonishingly patient. And despite resistance or opposition, one day Jesus Christ will judge all who did not submit, did not submit to him as king. And so I'm convinced that these words are written for you and for me. Jesus looks directly at us and asks, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So the question for us is, what are you and I doing about Jesus today? Are we opposing him? Are we ignoring him? Are we letting him have pieces that seem to fit with his agenda and ours? Or are we joyfully submitting to his total authority as king? And here's the amazing thing. This is what Jesus did. Right? We read in Philippians 2 that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He perfectly obeys in the way that we never will. And he did it to bring us life. Jesus perfectly submitted to God's total authority. And he calls us to follow him. And he is astonishingly gracious to all who will trust in his sacrifice for us.